Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. We've got a full studio. A full we've got studio. Daughters, we've got authors. And, and we've got, uh, basically, a Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty, so to speak. Yes. Yeah, no, that is a strange coincidence, isn't it? Because I've got Cass Moriarty, but she has nothing to do with Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> but now I'm going from something that we have got to something we haven't got. Many of us have had our parents die, hopefully after living a long and rich life. And that's how Cass Moriarty starts her book, Parting Words. Welcome here to 3CR and welcome to Melbourne. Thank you very much. Cass is a a Brisbane writer. Now, Cass, in your book, Parting Words, who died? Daniel Whitaker has died at the beginning of the book. In fact, the book opens with his funeral. And he's buried with his World War II medals. Um, But had Daniel ever related his war stories? He hadn't, really. Um, Like a lot of people of his generation, it had been a a bit of a taboo subject. He'd never shared stories or memories about his his war service. And his his children actually found the medals after he died and didn't really know um, what they were even for. And really, as they wondered... Had their father wanted them, ever wanted the medals, medals to be found? So what other secrets had their father had? Look, um, Kazmaria Arti has set this book up in a most original way that, that had his children learn more about him. His three adult children came to, well, to the reading of the will and to hopefully get the estate settled. But they were asked to do something quite extraordinary. They were, they were. As one of the conditions of the distribution of the estate, they were told that they had to hand deliver a number of letters to strangers, really, people that they didn't know. They didn't recognise the names on the letters. They didn't know how to track these people down. They weren't sure where to start. And, of course, they didn't know what were in the letters. So it was quite confronting for them. And, look, the cover of the book, I know we shouldn't talk about covers, but it is a good one. It It actually shows (laughs) that uh, all the envelopes have age to them. You know, sort of some of the envelopes could have been 30 years old with an age, with a name on them. So... Callie, one of the daughters, knows one name, Irene White. But this is a surprise to the others, her other sister and brother. So there's also secrets between the siblings. Now, why did Daniel, the father, tell his youngest daughter about Irene? Well, um, I think Kelly was going through, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but I think Kelly was going through some difficult times herself and her father, in a moment um, probably helped by a few glasses of wine, decided to let her in on the secret. Uh, And that was a secret that she then kept from her siblings. So then it became sort of a secret within a secret. So let's think about happy marriages. Well, Daniel and his wife had been married for 60 years. But let's hear a little bit from Kaz Moriarty's book. Why don't you leave him if you're so unhappy? Yes, that's typical of people your age. Give up when things get difficult. Trial separations, trial marriages... The problem isn't that the marriage has stopped working, it's that you people lack the self-discipline to continue on regardless. But if both of you aren't happy, why stay together? 
No one ever said marriage was about happiness, young lady. Marriage is about commitment and children and fulfilling your vows. Happiness doesn't necessarily come into it. Well, don't complain then if you're not willing to change things. And her mother would sigh and shake her head. Oh, I should have done something years ago, I suppose. But it's too late now. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, the youngest um, daughter there, Callie, was divorced. And the older brother, Richard's second wife, was the same age as his children from the first marriage. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but in contrast, the other sister, Yvonne, has been in a very long, loving relationship. But her parents, Daniel and Shirley, were very critical of this. Mm, yeah, Yvonne's got a beautiful relationship with her partner, Libby, and I really enjoyed writing that, uh, you know, their story into the book. Um, and I think it's, it's very apt at the moment with the whole um, postal vote debate uh, about what makes a family and whether a family is, you know, the people that we choose um, and how important it is that that a loving bond makes a family rather than perhaps a piece of paper. Yeah, yeah. So mm. Yvonne and Libby, they, they didn't... They, took a long time before Daniel actually and his wife Shirley accepted them. They did. Yeah. Well, now let's get back to these envelopes. On another one is the name Nigel Lawless. Richard knew Daniel, his father, used to work with Nigel Lawless. Yvonne delivered that letter and the envelope also contained a cheque. Now, page 53, this is Yvonne who... Um, explained about delivering this letter with cheque to Lawless's son. He had a right to it. And if what Dad said... Oh, sorry. Sorry, I just started at the wrong spot there. <laughs> Giving him that money, knowing I'd in some way acknowledged what had happened to his father, that gave me more pleasure than I've had in a long time. She gave her brother a tight smile. Maybe that's why Dad wanted one of us to do it and not him said Kelly. Perhaps he wants us to experience something through this process, something good. What rubbish, snapped Richard. Dad was just too cowardly to own up to this when he was alive and now he's left it to us to sort out his messes for him. I can't wait to see what's in store next. So Rich was pretty angry, but there was, Rich is also hiding a secret. He is, yes. He's got his own secrets. Yes, mm. yes. So Richard, Yvonne and Kelly. They're, with with the delivery of these envelopes, are building a new identity for their father. As you know, knowing, learning about his, mm. their father mm. as a student, a soldier, a businessman, a man who who could act recklessly and cruelly, and also capable of extramarital affairs and sincere emotion. Now mm. we we've got a connection to a Jewish Holocaust survivor. Margaret's on it. But you suggested in your own notes as an author to go to a YouTube channel. And I've got to say I did. And I was blown away by mm, that. Mm. Yeah, that's an amazing story, actually. And it, it's a really good example of how sort of small ideas or random occurrences can spark the idea for a novel or the idea for a character in a novel. Um, and that was a, a fellow, a, a musician, Moshlo, that I met who played absolutely beautiful, haunting doina oh. um, violin music, uh, sort of the Romanian gypsy music, very beautiful and, and an expression of his grief, 
really, and that's that's what sparked the idea for that character in the book. And this character's niece, because this character is is dead, the niece gives Richard something, and I hadn't heard about this, a grieving stone. She does. She gives him a grieving stone, which he, he then carries around and sort of... He doesn't really believe in it at first. He thinks it's all sort of hogwash, but he he does nevertheless carry it around. And I think perhaps by the end of the book, it's maybe it's helping him. Yeah, absolutely. Um the envelopes only had a name on them. Now, as an author, Casmariati, you must have done a bit of detective work to find out how people can search out. <laughs> I did. I did. And it was, yeah, it was interesting to sort of see, well, in, in one way to see how much information you can find out, certainly nowadays with the internet, but, but also sometimes how difficult it is to find out information from a long time ago. And it's just through marriages and deaths and... Yes, and searches, on, you know, on the internet, all, all of that. And remembering that these all these envelopes as part of the will had to be hand-delivered. But what if the closest relative was living somewhere overseas? Well, I think... I. Th- I thought that it was important that they that that was a condition that they were hand delivered because I think that that then puts the the ch- the adult children in a situation of having to confront these people um, personally these people from their their father's past so it was important to me that they had to to do that in person and so it was Callie the single mother who actually was given the funds to take a three year old yes. over to. Yes, Japan. Japan was the only option, and so she she ends up taking a trip to Japan to deliver one of the letters. Now this connects right back to where we started, really, with um, with Daniel's war medals being uh, buried with him. So let's just hear a little bit from page eighty three about just Daniel and his feel feeling about Japan. He had nurtured a deep and abiding hatred for the Japanese. Kelly could remember the one time her mother brought home takeaway sushi for dinner. Such a novelty back then. Her father had taken one look and stormed out of the house without a word. When Kelly had finished school and was debating whether to travel overseas before university began, she had toyed with the idea of Japan. Over my dead body, her father had said. We were forced to go and fight the buggers. Why on earth would you want to go there for a bloody holiday? But she does. She does get to Japan. And I look, I thought this was so weird. It must be true, um, Kazmarati. She went to a place called Shikoko and there there was a loudspeaker on the wall that at nine o'clock at night blasted out and told everybody that it was time to turn off all the gas and oil heaters and go to bed. That is absolutely true. We used to live in Japan and (laughs) that's right. Nine o'clock at night, the reminder to turn off your oil heaters because there's such all the houses are wooden, so there's quite a a fire danger and six o'clock in the morning it would play the exercise music and everyone would have to be would be expected to get up and either join in the in the town square or just do it in in their own home do the exercises yeah and you couldn't turn it off it was (laughs) astounding it was so weird i thought it must have been (laughs) so um 88 years, that's how, how long Daniel's alive for. And yes. it's a long time to keep all of these secrets. But, you know, finding out things like why does a man with such a good academic research, uh, uh, academic uh, uh, qualifications, up and leave school and lie about his age and mm. join the mm. army and then <clears throat> never talk about the army. And there's just so many, so many things. Yeah, and I, <clears throat> as I was writing him and, and writing different 
aspects of his past and different stages of his life. You know, it made me think a lot about how many how many lives we lead, you know, by the time we're in our 80s or 90s, you know, there's so many different selves that we sort of inhabit and and we tend to only know, you know, people that we know, elderly people that we know, we we know them as elderly people. Mm. We don't necessarily know all of those different lives that they've led. So I think it's very interesting, um, you know, and the sort of the oral histories that people have and how important it is to get those those stories from your um, grandparents and parents because once they pass on, you know, all of that history is lost. Yeah, I think it is when you go to memorial services and you sort of know one aspect of a person and then you hear people You hear things about. that are completely surprising. Yeah. yeah. It was yeah. a brilliant way to do it, having these envelopes. Oh, thank so, you. So it was fun. Did... It was a lot of fun to do. And, you know, it was so interesting that after the book was written, I found out some own secrets about my own family that I didn't know and that were completely coincidental. Did somebody come to you with an envelope? <laughs> no, there was no envelopes involved. But I did find out that my that my father had a sibling who died ah. when he was a child, which there was be- if you've read the book, yes. you, that you will know that that's very, very interesting coincidence. Mm. <gasps> so we're, wrongdoings and rightdoings. Is Daniel a coward and a liar for not addressing the issues in his life? Or were the letters a glimpse inside his heart a unique and precious gift oh look all of it was a really really good read oh thank you i'm so glad you enjoyed it and i hope it gets people talking i like books that make people think and the one thing if you've ever had to clean out your parents yes. cupboards you know you know st vinnie's who are the recipient recipients mm. of many of this thing and they were thinking of making this particular family a patron yes. saint. <laughs> it was very good. So the book was uh, Parting Words by Kaz Moriarty and it's published through UQP. Well, I'm going from Moriarty to Sherlock Holmes. Many would consider conducting an interview as an elementary process. <laughs> but when it comes to discussing the Australian casebook of Sherlock Holmes, things become a bit trickier. To begin with, it's a compilation of stories by a series of authors, so here to talk about it is Lucy Sussex, one of the writers. So, Lucy, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you very much. Now, the connection between Australia and Sherlock Holmes isn't that far-fetched, is it? It's not impossible because um, Doyle actually wrote a story set in um, Australia called The Gully of Blumen's Dyke. Ah. It's not a particularly good story. It contains a wombat. (laughs) <laughs> um, and I have a strong feeling he'd never seen a wombat in his life. But there's a reference in some of the Sherlock Holmes stories. The sign of four um, has um, Dr. Watson has... Uh, Holmes and Watson are visiting a house where the grounds have been dug up in search of a treasure and Dr. Watson remarks that he has seen something similar at the gold prospector's diggings near Ballarat. So there are references in the short, in the in the homes. Oh yeah, story. there's certainly enough to suggest that. Um, I mean, Australia was very much in the news and in the the, the magazines, and people were, were intensely interested in this rich southern land. Um, so Doyle would have been interested as a source of source of material. He was never here, but he can send his characters here. And although he did have a brother-in-law, um, Hornung, who wrote the Raffles series about a gentleman burglar, and his brother-in-law did go to the Riverina and worked on a station as a jackaroo. 
Ah, mm. ah, so there's that, that sort of fascination. Um, but I'm just wondering about the genesis of this compilation. How did you come to be involved? How was it all put together? Because there's 15 authors or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a lot of wrangling of authors. <laughs> um, I, it's, it's part of a series. Um, the editor, Christopher, has been looking at revisiting various um, mythos. So the previous one was Cthulhu. So I did that. And then Sherlock Holmes is a little bit easier um, because I, you know, I I like the Victorian era and I'm, I'm very familiar with the Sherlock Holmes canon because I worked as a researcher for a history of Australian crime fiction by Stephen Knight. So I thought, you know, goody. Um, and he said, good, well, we're doing it by place and you can have Tasmania. And I said, I've never lived in Tasmania. I've only visited there for holidays. So I said, well, how about New Zealand? Because at the stay, at that time, pre-Federation, Australia and New Zealand were part of the seven Austral colonies. So if you said Australia, that actually, they were much more closely linked. Well, there, there was, when they were talking about Federation, New Zealand was in the loop, and as was Fiji at that mm. stage as well. So it, it could have brought them all together. But yes, sorry. I mean, at one stage, we, you know, West Australia could have seceded and it could have been yes. the eastern states in New Zealand, which would have been an administrative nightmare, but <laughs> never mind. <laughs> but, I mean, the editor, Christopher, has uh, actually um, invented a, a sort of story as well when a large assortment of notes was uncovered in an auction of a deceased estate in Sydney a few years ago and the contents appeared to be related to Holmes and Watson. I was astounded. So he's fabricated a sort of uh, potential discovery there as well. He's, in, he's been enjoying himself. Now, there'd be certain prerequisites when it comes to writing in the vein of a deductive Sherlockian, if I can use that word, detective story. What are some of those conventions? Um, well, first of all, it's got to involve Sherlock and Watson. Naturally. Um, but also you've got to get the language right. And he writes sort of... It, it's, and he presents a window into the 19th century that's very understandable because his language is accessible and yet you can, it, it's not our language. So you've got to get the language right. And also you have to think of the way he operates in that he's a he's a consulting private detective and he's incredibly rational and so everything that happens in those these stories follows a distinct train of logic and but at the same time it's very involving of the reader so you're very so to try and work in the Sherlock Holmes vein is actually to learn a lot about how you construct a good detective story. Right. I mean, there's also the, the conventions like the deductive reasoning. Um, today I saw a paperboy. He stood with one hand thrust deep into a pocket, one toe lifted off the ground. He only had one newspaper remaining. He wore a scarf around his neck. Clearly, Watson, he is a boy at the end of his day's work. His hand clutches his fare in his pocket, hoping not to pay, but ready should he need to. The scarf is dusty around the edges and the back of his hair must, leading me to understand he has taken some rest during the day. He is carrying this latest newspaper home to his father. I could see that the pages were bent. He could not sell this copy and would not have to pay for it. So there's that that whole sort of uh, Sherlock attitude of, of observation that has to and come deduction into it. and very precise um, sense of character. So he, so he introduces his characters very precisely. Mm. 
Now, another convention, of course, is that Watson is the narrator, but you toy with this convention in your short story. Well, that's entirely to do with its genesis of the story because I didn't actually have a lot of time. And I thought, have I got an existing Victorian story? And, oh, yes, I did, which was based on a real-life Australian author um, who called Ellen Davitt after who the Sisters in Crime Davitt Awards are named and she wrote Force and Fraud which was the first Australian murder mystery novel but she also left a couple of other interesting stories and one of it was the was the inn by the roadside and which you can read this story and think well I either she's presenting a um, witness at a trial who's completely unreliable or else he's totally unreliable and telling porkies and so so I took that story and basically introduced a character based on David who's, who's, exam, who's listening to the case in court and thinking there's something suspicious about this, um, but I can't quite put my finger on it. Um, and I wrote the story and I submitted it to several competitions and it got nowhere. And then I'm approached, would I like to write for this anthology and I thought okay yeah what happens if I add Holmes and Watson to it and then suddenly it add that and suddenly it works um in the and I having sort of nominated New Zealand I then put them on a on a on a paddle st- steamer going from um Australia to New Zealand and and this sort of raises some interesting points about uh, the conclusion of your story, by the way, has um, Holmes lost for words. Unusually. Unusually. So you can play again with some of these conventions. So while it's got to conform on the one hand, it can toy with some of the others. And so you've already mentioned uh, historical reference. Mm. And so a lot of the stories have done some research. And I was just wondering... And you probably can't answer it in many ways. How many would have actually used real life accounts like the one you have? Well, you'd have to you'd, you'd have, have to, to ask each and every each and every author. But there are historical figures mentioned, and um, for instance, in a rather good story called Raymond Gates, um, the Sung Man, he mentions Wiltshire. Now, Wiltshire was very famous as um, in Central Australia as someone who was nominally who should have protected the Indigenous people and didn't. Right. So, yes, and I was wondering all the way through because there are references to newspapers and such like in some of the stories, and I'm thinking, are these actual newspaper accounts that have been used or toyed with? So you've got then a contemporary author uh, with that uh, ability to look into um, historical references, but also then a contemporary author with a contemporary perspective. And the other interesting thing I noticed, a lot of very strong women in these stories. Well, Doyle's a product of his time, but if if uh, but um, and he has certain attitudes, but if you look at what's happening in Australia, if we send Doyle and Watson, Australia is actually far more progressive than England. And one of the things, you've got women attending universities. You've um, Bella Gurren, for instance, who was the first graduate at Melbourne University. You've also got um, movement for women's suffrage. And in fact, they get it in South Australia and New Zealand well before the rest of the world. And it's without violence, as happened in England. So you had the Australian suffragettes going back to England and um, instructing the um, English suffragettes. 
And also then, um, there's a story, The Wild Colonial, um, which is one of... It's a joint one, actually. Kerry Greenwood um, and, and Linda, Linda Cam- Cameron. Yep. And the character is Harry, but Harry's a girl, a tomboy. But it's an interesting connection because you've got a rake, shall we say, to use a Victorian word, taking advantage of women. But at the same time, uh, so you've got the conventional sort Mm. of Victorian woman being taken advantage of. But then the new age coming through more strong, uh, well, a stronger um, uh, sort of proponent, uh, more independent, which was interesting. Oh, yes, but... Historically, they were the women in Australia had more freedoms, and there was the little little bushmaid in Mary Grant Bruce. They really were girls who were galloping around the the countryside, cracking whips and being very independent. Well, they had to be given, you know, the nature of the country and yeah, the and frontier, the, yeah, the frontier life that they were leading. Um, so we need more stories, but also then the notion of landscape, as you said, uh, these were. Uh, set out by location. So we go all over Australia. Oh, look, Homer's and Watson have a jolly good tour, <laughs> to use an English expression. Um, and they go and they go everywhere. And um, the thing is that landscape's very important to the crime story in which it plays, it sets the scene. So with Fergus Hume's Mystery of the Handsome Cap, that's Melbourne as it was in the 1880s, the glorious boomtown. Go to fast forward to Arthur Upfield, and Arthur Upfield is a superb painter of um, outback Australia. He's he's you know he's one of the best, and so Lacalle very much determines what's going to happen. Yeah, what's going to happen, and each colony would have been at a different stage of development, which would have had to have been sort of researched and captured by the respective author in in those regions. Well, yes, like South Australia was full of radicals. <laughs> really? <laughs> um, also, you, you mentioned the Sung Man. Now, some of these stories have played against type because there is a completely explicable death that um, isn't mysterious in many ways. It's sort of, we've got this investigation of how this man died, but then the outcome is, is not something... Uh, extraordinary in many ways it's uh, relatively conventional we can't give away a lot of the endings of these stories but it sort of plays against type in in that regard yeah so so you're actually straining against the conventions and yet you can make it work in a story yes i mean another one is the is the prima donna's finger where there's a sort of contrived mystery Mm. uh that takes place um but then there's the more conventional. There's one, uh, the adventure of the demonic abduction, which, in terms of a storyline progression, um, we've got the supernatural and all of these extraordinary things happening, and yet through logic it's rational. But that would seem to fit the the Sherlock, the traditional Conan Doyle Sherlock Holmes mould. Um, well, when Doyle starts out, he very much is the rational detective, and so any ghosts are explained. And this goes back to the Gothic and Anne Radcliffe. Um, it's only much later in his life, after he's lost his son in World War One, that he gets interested in spiritualism and even in the existence of fairies. Yes, he saw the fairies at the bottom of the garden, which was a complete aberration in many ways for for, for Conan Doyle. Uh, well, I mean, just to link to Cass's book, grief does strange things to people. Yeah, yes, he lost mm. his son. 
So how do you account for the enduring nature of Holmes and Watson? I think it's two very strong characters and um, that people identify with, the everyman and the rational man who is on the side of good, on the side of justice. But at the same time, the stories are very well constructed and they move very well. Um, so he's perfectly, he's got a perfect marriage of form and content in that it's a short, there's just enough matter to fit into a short story. And so it really works. And then they appeared in The Strand, which was an early magazine that had lots of illustrations. So then you got the illustrator, Sidney Paget who came up with the image of Holmes and added the deerstalker. And so that people had this very strong visual image of Holmes, even before television. And that was kind of enduring. And then it keeps on being picked up. So it's, you know, you get Basil Rathbone, and then you get Cumberbatch, and then you get um, Ian McClellan. And every every 10 years, Holmes gets reinterpreted because he's such such an icon. Yeah, such an icon. Well, I mean... It's a fascinating collection, and it's going to be released on November the 1st, I believe. That is right, yes. Indeed. So 15 authors getting together for a book launch, perhaps. Oh, we're too geographically... um... Isolated to do that. Is there a launch anywhere in particular? There's a launch in Sydney, and there's one planned in Melbourne. Lovely. Well, the book is Sherlock Holmes, The Australian Casebook. Lucy Sussex was my guest, but there are 15 authors altogether in this compilation, anthology, and um, the publisher, or Echo Publishing. So there we have it. And I was speaking with Cass Moriarty about her book's parting words. Moriarty, I love it. (laughs) Yes. Please listen in next week.